Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can I share something slightly frustrating for me that is a problem I never expected to encounter in what is nearly my 40th year of life? Always. I seem to have developed a cowlick that I can't <laughs> tackle. Do you see welcome this right here? To, welcome to my yeah, world, welcome baby. Welcome to the party, man. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I've had curly hair my whole life. And like, you know, it's, it's, I'm not going to lie, last 10 or 15 years has been kind of coming and going, depending on the miracles of modern science I choose to apply to my head. Uh, but like, this is a weird one. I don't know what to do. What is this? What is this lock of hair doing here? There is a solution to this problem, and it involves uh, one of those guys that goes, and you just keep <laughs> yeah. it really short. And there are no cowlicks. Alternatively, grow grow it longer. Because I will say, I used to have longer hair. And when I cut it short, it turned out that I had multiple cowlicks. So there was kind of a mad scientist oh, so, thing I feel like your hair on. is always very straight and coiffed and like well well straightened. But is your curl hair, that's, is your hair curlier effort. than it looks? So it's, a lot of, it's a lot of brill cream that goes into Quinta's <laughs> look. I guess I could buy a comb, but it's <laughs> like so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, reunited again in our virtual studio with my two regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. For at least a few more weeks to come, and we are thrilled to be joined by, of course, co-host Emeritus Lawfare what is your what is your title? Lawfare editor in chief, uh, <laughs> and our bosses, our boss, and general busybody Benjamin Wittes. <laughs> ben, thrilled to have you back on the podcast as we're digging into a couple of topics that you've written on uh, in the last few weeks. Here, uh, excited to have you back on the podcast. Good to be here, and I, I love that Joe Biden like tripping over your words introduction. There you go. That is that is my usual style. It worked for him. It seems to work for me. We are honored with a a particularly bedecked Benjamin Wittes today, wearing a shirt with a collar on it, and not and not even like a like a straight up dress shirt with a collar on it. What is what is the occasion? The occasion is a request from a distinguished member of the diplomatic corps to come to an embassy and brief this particular embassy over lunch. Oh, excited! Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to see that you still have dress shirts. Relieved on that front, at least <laughs> that they did not go the way. I will assure the readers who are in need of assurance on this: it is not the Russian embassy that I am going to brief <laughs> on the Trump trials. Uh, that would be an invitation to see. I would worry about whether you would exit. <laughs> it's they've got a kind of a Saudi embassy sort of vibe, unfortunately. <laughs> so I worry about who's coming out uh, once you yeah, go. Yeah, I but, would uh, not go in that building. Yeah, well, well. regardless, we are thrilled to have you here today. 
bedecked however you choose to be for what we are calling the Licking the Cow edition in honor of my uh, general sartorial challenges uh, on this particular day and a lot of days recently in regards to my haircut. But haircut or no, we have a lot of big news on the national security front here this week uh, to talk about. Topic one, constitutional annoyance. Last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Trump v. Anderson, the case weighing whether former President Trump's involvement in January 6th should disqualify him from being able to stand as a candidate in 2024 under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, at least in Colorado. Scott, is Donald Trump suing you? No, not this time. (laughs) We did sue him once. Remember that? That was fun (laughs) back in the day. But I mean, there there was a case before the Supreme Court last week called Trump v. Anderson and uh, we just had to make sure that it was not you that was the respondent. It's no also worth noting here. that there was another case that came up during oral argument uh, where the, the case title also involved in Anderson. Uh, so, Scott, you're just you're all over this. I'm all over the place. I'm not gonna lie, guys. Pretty common name. Jillian, Pamela, no relation <laughs> whatsoever, <laughs> either with me or with other of these lawsuits, as far as I could tell. Uh, so, sadly, uh, we are just Andersons, all Andersons kind of scattered to the winds with no direct involvement in these uh, each other's matters. But this particular matter, uh, it was notable that the justices for once seemed pretty unified in their skepticism of the idea that former President Trump should be disqualified under Section 3. But they were far less unified in regards to what the basis for not disqualifying him should be with lots of theories coming out in questioning. We are now, of course, waiting for an opinion or other disposition of the final case. Where do we think it is headed and what will its ultimate impact be on the 2024 election and beyond? Topic two, putting the hurt on her on parentheses there. Not the hurt locker. I tried to do the hurt locker, but I couldn't. I couldn't quite get it. So I said it was. Her? I also looked into that as well. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about how long the report was because <laughs> Ben Hur is like five and a half hours long, but that's okay. Uh, putting the hurt hurt on is <laughs> we'll have to set rest with this one because Special Counsel Robert Hur completed his investigation into President Biden's alleged mishandling of classified documents last week, the same day as oral arguments in Trump v. Anderson. In fact. And while he opted not to bring any charges, his lengthy final report has caused a stir, not just for laying out Biden's apparent mishandling of classified documents over an extended period of time, but also for citing Biden's advanced age and apparent memory issues as grounds for not pursuing a prosecution, observations that have reignited anxieties regarding Biden's capacity to stand for re-election. Was her out of line or just doing his job in making these observations? And how will his conclusions impact events moving forward, including the prosecution of former President Trump for his own mishandling of classified documents? And topic three, I can't pay the rent, but you must pay the rent. I moved a bow. Anybody know that play? Nothing? No, everybody seems to that not. Went you don't know what this is? extremely over my head. Ben knows what it is. The bow tie play? I have absolutely play. no idea what I must, that was. I, must, I can't pay the rent. I must pay the rent. It's the villain and the landlord and the hero. I'll pay the rent. My hero. Drat, it's foiled again. Alan yeah, and I exactly. are just watching in mute Youth. horror as this Youth. unfolds. Is, is, is someone having a stroke? I can't tell who's having a stroke right now. <laughs> I might. This might give me a stroke. Something happened between the years 1985 and 1988 when we were born, Alan. That that you missed this cultural landmark, which is a shame. Um, but we will, we will, we will uh, uh, educate everyone in this particular play. The key point being. Donald former President Trump has once again resumed the role as enforcer over the defense spending level of NATO members, suggesting recently that he would encourage Russia to do whatever it wants with any new members who fail to meet their commitments. Comments that have triggered new anxiety over how NATO may fare in a second Trump presidency if former President Trump is reelected in 2024. 
How serious should we take these comments and what should folks be doing in response? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So as is my want, uh, when I get the opportunity, I'm going to just turn it right back around to an expert who has actually listened to the oral arguments and uh, was part of one of Lawfare's patented multi-author bylines giving a recap. And that is, of course, Scott Anderson. Uh, Scott, you paid a lot of attention to this argument. Um, can you sort of give an overview of sort of what the main points of contention seem to be? Uh, or maybe not points of contention, given just how one-sided the argument seemed to be, but rather sort of what were the main things that the justices uh, were focusing on in order to kind of dispose of, of this case, which I think at this point everyone suspects will either be a, an 8-1 or perhaps even if they can get Justice Sotomayor on board, a 9-0 reversal of Colorado throwing Trump off the ballot. Yeah, I mean, it was a really exceptional oral argument to listen to because you rarely hear them that are just so openly one-sided. Honestly, every justice except for Justice Sotomayor really was just highly skeptical of the idea that former President Trump should be disqualified. And we're a particularly hot bench um, for the lawyer, Mr. Murray, representing Anderson in this matter, who faced like a, a pretty stiff line of questioning, I think handled himself admirably, given that there were a number of hard questions and digging into a lot of kind of parade of horribles that may follow from particular rulings of different types, which are always hard questions to answer because they're kind of complex hypotheticals that haven't and, been and I, before. I just want to say, I, I knew Jason in college. He is a great dude, incredibly smart. And I just, I feel really bad for advocates when they come up and just like, it is, it is hard. Yeah, he really when, got the, got the stuffing knocked out of him there. It, but like, it's it hard when, when the, you know, the eight or nine people with black robes and life tenure are just like not having it. It's just, it's just going to be a bad day for you no matter what. I think that's right. And in part, I don't think people really saw this coming. Like the, the academic conversation, the scholarly conversation has been all over the place, but there are such strong advocates on the political right and the political left from originalist perspectives, from lots of different perspectives for disqualification that have come out pretty vocally in the last few months. I was expecting it to be people to have not hold their cards closer to their chest, perhaps, um, not be quite as clear uh, about where they're leaning. But I don't think there was much gray area in this decision. Quinta, Ben, feel free to disagree with me or Alan, who I, I'm sure is caught up on the argument now, um, even though I know you can listen the day of. So it was pretty exceptional from that regard. The main line, though, seems to be that there was a l- much less agreement about what exactly the grounds is for determining former President Trump did not covered by the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The main argument advanced by Trump, who was benefited by having really an exceptional oral advocate, uh, much more effective oral advocate than in his briefing, I thought, in his lawyer, Mr. Mitchell, um, who did an exceptional job in addressing the initial line of arguments and got some tough questions himself. I don't think they're entirely soft on him on his different theories. But the main argument they've advanced, although it's one of several, is essentially one based on this Griffin's case idea. There's a reference to an 1860s case, one of the really only ones to interpret Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It's not a Supreme Court case. It's not binding precedent, but it's kind of um, taken to be maybe some persuasive authority that Section 3 requires some sort of legislative implementation to be used. And I think that's the argument that's got the most center of gravity. Um, Certainly, Justice Kavanaugh seemed pretty heavily bought into it, I thought. It is a solution to a lot of the anxiety expressed by Justice Kagan and Justice Barrett about you know, what the procedure should be, how this should be handled, all sort of the carry on risks. Because once you say this requires implementing legislation, it falls on Congress to answer those questions. Chief Justice Roberts, I thought also was kind of leaning in this direction, or at least it could help address many of the anxieties he had. Justice Gorsuch, maybe less clear, but also a little bit in that way. 
But it wasn't the only argument we heard. We heard different variations of the idea that Section 3 just doesn't reach the presidency. Uh, a lot touched on the kind of infamous argument that we've gotten uh, a lot of hay over over the last few months about whether whether how finally you can splice the language of Section 3 to distinguish whether a president constitutes an officer of under the United States uh, or an officer for certain other purposes in the, in the language of Section 3. We saw a somewhat more straightforward version of it, advanced of all people by Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who posited, why wasn't the presidency expressly listed in Section 3 if it's so important? Uh, doesn't that inherently create ambiguity? And you saw other arguments as well uh, about whether this was really something that could states should be in a position to do, given that the 14th Amendment as a whole was generally understood to be empowering the federal government over the states. So it'd be strange to all of a sudden give the states a ton more authority to enforce uh, federal election disqualification. I'm actually not sure that doesn't make sense, if I'm being honest. I don't think that was the ripest line of questioning. But the justices, several of them seem kind of persuaded by it. And in my mind, that's another one of these things that could easily pivot to a Griffin's case type resolution because, again, you're kicking the bucket to Congress to answer a lot of these hard questions about how you should handle this sort of disqualification. I, the way I came out of this, I know that my co-authors in the lawfare piece, including Ben, uh, came came on this, and I think, Quinta, you said something similar in your Atlantic piece. The writing's on the wall. President Trump is not going to be disqualified. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Whether it's 9081, that's, not, that's the outcome. The real question here is what the basis is, and that can have knock-on ramifications in terms of other points at which maybe he will face other legal challenges on the similar legal theory later uh, if they just dismiss this more or less on procedural sort of sorts of grounds, or whether they get all the way to these substantive arguments of how to understand Section 3 that might resolve it with more finality before 2024. Yeah, so I am less, a little bit less convinced that Scott than Scott is that there is a major division among the justices here about rationale. Oftentimes, what you will see in an oral argument is people, justices exploring different aspects of an argument, but then kind of in conference and as the draft, kind of congealing around uh, a single rationale. And I think you have a vision here of what that rationale would be, which is the idea that uh, a state cannot, a single state on its own cannot implement uh, Section 3 through its regular old election law, but requires some affirmative action from Congress before it can uh, adjudicate a Section 3 question through ballot access provisions. I don't think there appeared to be five votes on the Supreme Court for categorically exempting the president from uh, the coverage of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, that may reflect my own prejudice that I think that argument is a weak one. But uh, with the exception of Justices Gorsuch and Katanji Brown-Jackson, I didn't see any particular attraction to it. And so my assumption is that you have a working majority of eight or nine justices who seem to think um, that not necessarily that Congress needs to uh, pass implementing legislation for all coverage of Section 3, but as applied to the president in a state or a federal officer in a, a state cannot 
uh, proceed to use election law without some ballot access law, without some affirmative permission from Congress. So I do expect some kind of I, I think I expect a less fractured court here than Scott might, but I do expect a pretty broad ruling uh, in terms of the number of justices and the ideological sweep, but a pretty narrow ruling in terms of what they're actually meaning to to restrict. I think I'm I'm in Ben's camp here. Um, so Derek Muller, who's a election law expert and blogs on election law blog, had a, a sort of amusing tweet after the end of arguments where he suggested that uh, the justices were coalescing around, and I quote, what I might characterize as a hybrid First Amendment due process Griffin's case ballot access rule. Uh, and I, I think the is that is that all one word hyphenated? <laughs> there are hyphens, <laughs> but I mean, I think Derek's point, as I understood it, is that you know the clumsiness is kind of the point there. Like they they seem to be moving toward a way of sort of combining different ideas about the the role the limited role in their view that states can play in deciding these issues on a, on a federal level for a national candidate. I may be wrong. I did not see that in the briefing particularly. And so it kind of struck me as an example of the justices just like really wanting to find an off ramp. Um, I think that they desperately did not want to rule for Trump and they were trying to figure out how. Um, and I think also you, you see this and how uninterested they were in addressing the merits of the question. You know, it took about an hour before anybody raised the issue of whether or not January 6th was an insurrection. And once that came up, it kind of didn't really come back again, except at the very, very end of arguments. And there's a really striking moment. I don't have the wording directly in front of me where Chief Justice Roberts, uh, I believe he was asking a question of Murray, sort of said, well, but, you know, what if we have, you know, one state says that there was an insurrection and that President Trump is disqualified. Another state says that there isn't. You know, what do we do then? Like, do do we have to weigh in on what an insurrection is? And and my answer would be, yeah, <laughs> like, that's that's what this case is. <laughs> um, and for what it's worth, I was listening to uh, Will Bode's podcast with Dan Epps, uh, Divided Argument this morning, Will Bode, of course, being one of the two originalist law professors who wrote with Michael Stokes Paulson, the sort of big law review article arguing for an originalist interpretation of Section 3 under which Trump would be disqualified. And Will made exactly that point, that the chief justice in that question and the court generally seemed both discomfited by the possibility of a variation of resolutions across states on this question and discomfited by the possibility that anybody might expect them to resolve the issue on the merits. And I, I think also, you know, that's potentially dangerous. And the reason, um, and this is an argument that, uh, Ned Foley and Rick Hassan, who are both election law professors and Ben Ginsburg, the longtime Republican election lawyer made in an amicus brief before the court, which, uh, Murray pointed to during arguments is that if the court doesn't address the merits, you can end up in a potentially dangerous situation of kind of kicking the can down the road where say Trump wins in November, we don't have a dispositive answer on the merits, then members of Congress might step in on January 6, 2025 and say, we're going to weigh in on this disqualification question. Um, and whether or not you think that's an appropriate reading of Section 3, um, I, the way that I read the 
Ginsburg Hassan Foley brief was that you're potentially really lighting a match and throwing it on a pile of gasoline soaked rags there, given what happened on January 6th the last time around. And so for that reason as well, I think it's a mistake for the court to kind of punt here. Well, and that's why I find the, the, argument that a lot of people that Derek kind of channeled, although I took his comment to tweet a little bit more sarcastic than an actual prediction uh, to some extent. But you saw a lot of people like Leah Littman, who's very smart about this stuff, and I hesitate to ever second-guess her uh, on reading the court, because uh, she's much more a closer court watcher than I am. But And a lot of other people seem to glom onto trying to say, like, oh, we see all these different arguments kind of knitting together, I take because they were kind of reinforcing the justices weren't challenging each other on them. But I see that – I think it's a really hard opinion to write, particularly if you think the court – is going to want to actually get some finality. Now, maybe they'll, they're going to be okay with saying Congress will have to reevaluate the Section 3 question when they're counting electoral ballots. But I think there's a pretty strong institutional drive that they're concerned about that. And if they're concerned about knock-on effects for the states reaching a ruling, I suspect they're going to be worried about knock-on effects for Congress and the electoral count process um, as well, which is why I think you end up the, – the the gravitational pulls seems to be, therefore, back to a much more straightforward Griffin's case-type argument like Trump was advancing as his primary argument, which is that Section 3 requires legislation of the type anticipated by Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which is how we understand other portions of the 14th Amendment are implemented, not – Exclusively, notably. So, like I said, I'm not sure this is persuasive from a like actual case law perspective entirely. But the idea that Section 3 requires appropriate legislation to implement, which is what Section 5 says how all of 14th Amendment will be implemented, makes sense. And that gets you to the final resolution because that means that there's no disqualification without that legislation that does not exist outside the, of one narrow criminal provision, which everyone seems to concede would cover this. And that means Congress can't disqualify Trump under Section 3 either. That's different than if you were to say, oh, just states can't do this. It's a federalism issue, which I think is like actually hard to read into the structure of the Section 3 or the 14th Amendment. You'd have a lot of background principles doing a lot of work that aren't that cohesive. And I don't know. It just didn't get you the outcome. The only other outcome you can get to is the the president's not covered by Section 3. And that had its adherence. Again, KBJ kind of coming out of nowhere with that support of that opinion. But – you know, I, I don't think that that will carry the day for the reasons Ben noted. It just didn't seem to have enough support. Uh, and so a Griffin's case kind of outcome comes out. And I will say just for the purposes, this is more or less what I predicted back when we started talking about this two years ago on this very podcast. But I, my mind kind of wandered a little bit in between a bit like, <laughs> but this is where we came back to, uh, cause it's much more about first principles and less about the merits of the argument, uh, for the Supreme Court in these sorts of cases, I think. I award you two, two gold stars to Hufflepuff, Scott. Thank you. Um, That's all I ask. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what's it's just interesting about the last 10 minutes of this conversation we've been having is, again, just this, like, absolute rock-solid consensus that the Supreme Court is going to reverse. This will not be close. And we're just, you know, fighting over exactly how to cobble together an opinion that will write. And, um, again, I, I think that seems that seems right to me, kind of as a, as a descriptive matter. But it, I think it does raise an interesting question that I think is worth reflecting on, which is there aren't that many cases, I think, in which there's such a dramatic divergence between kind of elite legal opinion going into the case and what the justices will decide. Of course, we don't exactly know what they'll decide, but we're just going to assume here that they're going to they're going to you know, pretty summarily or pretty could have easily reverse this opinion. Like I, I feel like you have to almost go back to the kind of uh, original Obamacare case in which elite legal opinion was there's no way that the individual mandate goes beyond the Commerce Clause. And then the justices are like, hey, the individual mandate goes beyond the Commerce Clause. Now, obviously, this is different here, right? It's not that there was overwhelming legal consensus that Trump should be disqualified. But there at least, I think, certainly was 
a lot of very serious people on the left, but most notably, and I think most interestingly, on the kind of institutionalist fed sock right, for lack of a better term, who thought this was very plausible. I mean, I, I held a conference on the Section 3 case that was uh, happening in Minnesota in early November. And again, we had a lot of different points of view, but like there were a lot of very serious people, actually mostly from the right, saying, yeah, here you know, 17 reasons why Trump is disqualified. And then you get to the court and it's just like a buzzsaw, right? On the right, on the left, in the center. Again, I'm not necessarily criticizing the folks who were putting forward this, this argument. I, you know, I thought there were sophisticated arguments and, and done in good faith. And at the end of the day, you know, it's not the job of, I certainly not, I think, legal academics to, you know, just try to predict what the court will do. Um, but it's just, it is a really notable divergence. And so I'm curious, you know, what, if anything, we should, we should take uh, away from that. Ben, what do you think? So I think there's a, f- a few things going on here at once. The first is that this argument, unusually among the sort of arguments that academics get excited about, has a very strong textual basis. Uh, and so therefore, it has an attraction to liberal academics because it's politically congenial and because it sounds in civil war history that they generally think is improperly excluded from a lot of um, modern jurisprudence. But it also has a real appeal to conservative originalists, um, both in the popular culture, people like David French, and in the academic world, people like Will Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson. So that's one element. But the second element is uh, the difference between legal academics and Supreme Court justices, which is that, you know, nobody talks about the passive virtues for academics um, because there are none. Academics like to make interesting legal arguments and they like to find theories by which things happen. Amen, brother. Justices... You know, at brutally least roasted, Alan. In their in their self conception, like to figure out ways not to do things, uh, and particularly like to figure out ways not to intervene in the political process. And so, there's a bit of a methodological difference between the uh, the two approaches. And you can say that you know, if you look at it from the point of view of what's an interesting theory, what's historically the most compelling and what has the strongest textual basis, you're going to reach a different answer than if you, with one eye on Bush v. Gore, say, well, what's the best way for us to stay the heck out of this issue? So I think those are the two factors that contribute to the difference in excitement level. Yeah, I would add that I don't know... Well, I don't, I don't know what academic discussion everyone's looking at because there's been a lot. And so I may only be focusing on a certain corner. I will say the discussion that I was focused on was much more on the merits of the question saying, what is the right answer? And that it was striking to me how much there was a consensus moving in the direction of section three mandates or at least allows on a state level disqualification in a way that I don't think I would have predicted before the Bode Paulson article. And I do think that that speaks to the actual strength of the arguments in question. I mean, I will say, I didn't think that 
Section 3 mandated disqualification and then did a bunch of reading and thought, okay, I was wrong about that. Um, but that is a separate issue from what people thought the court would do. And I think that the court here was kind of caught between, on the one hand, the strength of the arguments, and on the other hand, the apparent weightiness of saying that a major party presidential nominee had committed an insurrection and therefore should be barred from the ballot. And I mean, a, a representative example, I think Adam Unikowski, who has a great legal substack, wrote a long post basically saying, like, here are all the reasons why the 14th Amendment very clearly seems to disqualify Trump. I give it a 10% chance that the court will actually do this. And so it was always a long shot. And the only reason that I think the possibility wasn't zero percent was precisely because of how strong the arguments are. That said, I think that the way arguments went made it pretty clear that like, you know, the, the cake was baked going into this. They they knew what they thought they were doing. They were just looking for a reason to justify it. Well, it, and a lot of the arguments in this space, this is unusual for, for academics and, and kind of commentariat, like they're situating, the authors are situating themselves as justices saying, we're looking at the legal question here, right? setting everything aside. I think the merits for the reason Quinta noted are like pretty strong here. I mean, it makes some intuitive sense that after the Civil War, if they're worried about disqualifying former Confederates from a variety of public offices, that that would reach the presidency. And the historical practice is all over the place in a way that does not comport with the Griffin's rule original understanding, although you can pick your history and, you know, line things up in a way to, to make a case there, right? But the actual Supreme Court that actually deals with the real world context in which the Supreme Court operates just doesn't decide things strictly on the merits. It is influenced by a whole variety of other political and institutional considerations that, you know, drive the outcome. And yeah, the actual merits of legal argument, I think, constrain legal outcomes within a certain band of plausibility. But within that band of plausibility, those other factors do a lot of work in guiding towards where these questions were. And if you listen to the questioning, that's what's really interesting. When KBJ was really hitting on that point about the president being not listed in Section 3, what does she say? Doesn't that introduce a lot of ambiguity in the scenario? They are searching for ambiguity so hard because when they find ambiguity, that gives them a lot of leeway to begin to say, well, now we can decide what we think the right outcome is institutionally, politically, policy-wise, um, more or less, even though they do it kind of implicitly in a lot of arguments. You know, that's just, that's legal realism, right? Like, I think this is a real observation, but legal academia, a lot of scholarship doesn't position itself as predicting what this Supreme Court will do. They are positioned as saying, here's what we think the right arguments are, should be based off like what we think justices should be weighing. Uh, and particularly the like merits considerations that we all agree should go into judicial decisions, not those high politics and institutional considerations that are more controversial and kind of get forced out unless you just embrace a much more, frankly, legal realistic mode of this sort of thing. So the last question I want to ask before we close out is what, if anything, this argument, and again, let's assume that the decision is is pretty strong in reversing the Colorado court, what this decision says about how the court might treat other Trump-related matters, right? Let's take, for example, the immunity uh, question that is currently uh, in front of the court uh, with respect to Trump's criminal immunity or lack thereof in the uh, federal January 6th uh, criminal case against him. You know, one one possibility might be that, you know, this is the court trying to stay out of these issues. One possibility might be that the court might kind of try to pair, not explicitly, but kind of between the lines, a win for Trump here with a pretty clear, you know, eight one and seven two nine oh loss for Trump in the immunity case. Uh Quinta, what what do you what do you think? Read the chicken entrails for me, please. 
happy to. Look, I think in in a some ways the timing for the court is kind of fortuitous here. The DC Circuit ruled on the immunity issue right before the Supreme Court heard arguments on the 14th Amendment issue and that does leave them kind of a a nice uh way to split the baby, so to speak, um, and say, you know, look at us, how how high and mighty we are, how wise, how above politics. We we give with one hand, we take from the other. We, you know, we we are truly not beholden to Trump in, in any way, yet we are also not partisan Democrats either. Can can we call that the uh, the Rosenstein gambit? The the, the both sides Rosenstein <laughs> well, gambit. <laughs> no, I mean so I will say I think it is interesting how quickly the punditry, and I include myself in this to some extent, kind of began to coalesce around this this option. I think Adam Liptak had a New York Times story around it. There's an extent to which this kind of fits very nicely with how John Roberts often tries to wiggle out of the various political corners that he so often finds himself in. And and I confess I will be a little amused if the court does end up taking that kind of option and everybody congratulates uh, them on, you know, how wise, how thoughtful, how unexpected this this solution was. But, you know, it is it is what it is. Our, our nine sages will make the decisions that they make. Well, going from one presidential disqualification to another, let us turn our sights to the Her Report, which came out this past week. Special counsel Robert Herr appointed late last year after the revelation that a number of classified documents were located at President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, as well as at the Penn Biden Center and a few other offices he has used over the years. We saw Special uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland appoint Robert Herr, a former Republican uh, appointed U.S. attorney, as I recall, um, to conduct this investigation as special counsel looking into President Biden's handling of these classified documents or mishandling of these classified documents alleged at this point. The report we got last week handed down in the midst uh, of the aftermath of the Trump v. Anderson argument essentially was a incredibly lengthy report, 370-odd pages, as I recall, going into incredible depth about how these documents were handled, and then goes into decisions about the reasoning behind declining to bring criminal charges. And among those, even though among those 370 pages was a lot of documentation of documents being uh, that are classified or containing classified information, seemingly being quite deliberately withheld by President Biden, uh, particularly after he left the vice presidency and earlier in his career um, during his time in the Senate. Nonetheless, they chose not to pursue a prosecution. And among the reasons listed and and kind of emphasized in the report is that he is an elderly man who will be in his 80s, advanced age at that point. Uh, I think the report assumes this would never not happen until after he were outside out of the White House, and that he is somebody who had a demonstrated memory lapses that would be sympathetic. Um, they specifically noted that he had trouble recalling the year that his son Bo died, uh, the beginning and end of his vice presidency, and, and quoting him on that regards, um, in ways that have really triggered the ire of the White House that is very sensitive about these sorts of allegations, given that Biden's age is a point of concern and contention in the 2024 election where he is standing for re-election, even though his most likely rival appears to be almost the same age. But nonetheless, <laughs> they appear to be a, a point that Biden is particularly sensitive about. Ben, you wrote, I thought, actually quite a good piece with our colleague Matt Gluck uh, on this yesterday, kind of laying out your views about it. W- what do you make of this report? What do you think are the big takeaways? And how do they intersect with both the 2024 election question 
and broader policy questions about handling of classified information, and most notably the fact that we have another criminal prosecution taking place right now of a, of a former president, former President Trump, for mishandling classified information as well at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, so there's there are a lot of questions embedded in there, and I want to disaggregate them a little bit. First of all, as to the White House's anger and the president's personal anger at the report. I actually thought the report was less horrendous than the White House did in terms of the gratuitous political swipes at the president. Another one, another good good episode title you, you've <laughs> stolen from me. Uh, we got to get you bring in on this Google Doc where I come up with these things earlier. You know, in context, the references to Biden's memory are genuine assessments of how his defenses would likely play in front of a jury of a type that you expect to see in a pros memo, which is what this document actually is. The problem arises because the pros memos that prosecutors normally write and in which they typically write this sort of thing uh, don't normally become public. And this document under the regs is not supposed to be a public document. But the attorney general has, uh, starting under uh, Bill Barr with the Mueller report, but continuing under Merrick Garland, uh, the attorney general has kind of changed these this private report requirement into a public report. And the result is that these comments that her made, uh, which were, are not inappropriate in my view in a private press memo, uh, become public and they happen to track rather unfortunately with Republican talking points as well as Democratic anxieties about having an 80 plus year old presidential candidate. So uh, look, I think all of that is unfortunate for for Biden. Uh, it is not actually the part that really interested me in the report, which was the, I thought, very upsetting portrayal of Biden's actual behavior, which has been somewhat lost in this whole discussion of how offended we should be by Mr. Hur's behavior. Uh, you know, this is another president who, uh, or presidential candidate who has retained classified information, used it for personal purposes. And while the case is quite different in a lot of respects from President Trump's and certainly uh, isn't remotely as bad, and I, I'm perfectly comfortable with the outcome, which is Trump being indicted on 40-ish counts in the Mar-a-Lago case and uh, President Biden not being indicted. I think that's a perfectly reasonable difference under the circumstances. I did walk away from it saying, gosh, you know, here's yet another uh, person who at the highest levels of government is kind of unwilling to follow the rules. And I I do – that bothers me because, you know, a lot of people actually take those rules pretty seriously and uh, people do get in a lot of trouble and have kind of career-ruining or life-ruining consequences when they don't. Um, the final thing I'll, I'll say about it is, 
you know, it, it really reminded me of the David Petraeus case. Um, in both cases, uh, again, the Petraeus case was worse in important respects. But the, in both cases, you had a senior official who kept notebooks with classified information, which he shared with, in one case, a biographer, and in another case, uh, a ghostwriter, and did so kind of knowing that there was classified information in there. And I, I, you know, just think we should expect better of our political leaders. And I think that Biden's anger at his press conference last week uh, really missed the point, which was that he had erred and it warranted a little bit more contrition than he showed. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I, I agree. I think that it is difficult to discuss this because there are so many issues wrapped up in in this one report. As you say, Ben, the question about handling of classified information is a serious one. And I think that there really is a, you know, it is possible to to take this report seriously without defaulting to focusing on the question of age and memory, which I feel like is a way that a lot of the political press has kind of defaulted too. Um, you know, like, if you take it seriously, then you must yell a lot about how Joe Biden is 81. And I, I don't think that you need to do that. And that, frankly, we owe it to all the people whose lives have been ruined because of mishandling classified information that was way less egregious than this at, at lower levels of government to take it more seriously and, you know, think about what this says about how the system clearly needs to be changed, because this is not working. I also think that there are serious implications here about how we think about the role of the special counsel system to bend to your point about how, you know, this is written as a prosecution memo. Those include negative information <laughs> about the person being investigated by their very nature, since it's laying out whether or not you're going to prosecute somebody. But and yet, you know, the assumption is that this is going to become public. And, and maybe that means that we need to think about how the special counsel regulations are written and whether there are tweaks that can be made. I don't know if there is a better system here, but it does seem to me like insofar as the existing regs were designed in response to the failure of the independent counsel statute to allow for some level of independent investigation well not having a prosecutor go completely rogue, but also reassuring public confidence in the integrity of the Justice Department and of these investigations, that is not working. And I don't know what a better system is, but this one is not doing it. Alan, I know you have something to say here, and I will I will let you jump in before I go to the memory issue, which I do think matters. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I just, 
Am I wrong that there's just an, a massive amount of hypocrisy on this point, right? Like, I feel like I was, I'm old enough to remember when Bob Mueller wrote a very long, you know, report about Donald Trump and, you know, concluded that Trump should not be or could not be you know, indicted or prosecuted uh, and then wrote hundreds of pages of pretty damning stuff about what Trump did and Liberals were pretty angry when uh, then Attorney General Bill Barr tried to uh, de-emphasize that portion. And yet those many of those same liberals seem very angry that Merrick Garland did not do the exact same thing here or something equivalent to. I mean, I mean am I, am I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not trying to be spicy here. Like, am I missing something or is this just purely like people, you know, partisanship is a hell of a drug? So uh, look, there are, it is definitely true that I have seen people on the left make the argument that like Merrick Garland should have edited the report ahead of time or something, which I think is insane for all of the reasons that you just set out. I will say, as someone who spent a fair amount of time along with Ben thinking seriously about the way that the regs were and weren't working during the Mueller investigation, I do think that some of what you're describing about Mueller reflects other ways that this system is not working, right? So I agree that, like, taking away from the her report, okay, the attorney general should have no discretion to release the report, is not a solution precisely because you can have scenarios like the Mueller investigation where, like, we really did need that document to become public. That said, I do think that, you know, Barr was able to take advantage of some of the ambiguities and the regs and the limitations on independence and the the discretion and releasing information to kind of warp the public conversation ahead of time. It's also true that, you know, the public did not understand Mueller's investigation to be, you know, fully independent and nonpartisan. Certainly, like, you know, there were plenty of people on the left who chose to see it that way. Um, and I think it was, to be clear, but just in terms of public perception. But it was also attacked ceaselessly on the right as something that was partisan. And so to the extent that the system is designed the way it is to reinsure public confidence that is not working. And I think there are aspects and tensions in how in the weaknesses of the regs as designed that we see manifesting in Mueller and in her in different ways, all of which is to say, like, I don't know what the solution is. But I do think that it is consistent to say, across the experiences of the last few years, this is not working so well. But, you know, it's hard for me to imagine a very compelling alternative, though. Like in both of these cases, you're put in a really difficult situation where you have an incumbent president being investigated for really potentially troubling actions. Um, I think maybe you can argue some are of different scale than others or different seriousness than others, but I think they're both serious enough and, and warrant consideration. And then the Justice Department that is nominally independent, but we all know in practice isn't always as independent as, as ideally it would be or may not be as independent, isn't perceived that way. Having to make the difficult decision saying, here, we're not going to pro- pursue charges or we don't think it's appropriate in these cases and having to provide a public reason for that. I can't imagine a universe where you could really withhold that and and not face political backlash and not for reasonable reasons. Like maybe if it's you're the president, like I generally think for anyone, almost anyone other than the president, uh, there would be a, a stronger case for like withholding these memos because generally someone who's not pursuing criminal charges shouldn't have their dirty laundry aired in public by the Justice Department. I think that's 100% true. But maybe the president's just one of those cases that the nature of the office and the politics around it, like, just require that to be the sacrifice here. The question I do have, though, and I want to turn it back to you on this, Quinta, is 
you know, I do think her maybe could have exercised more discretion in how he framed this thing. I don't know if that's a matter of like writing the regs better. I think it just may have been a a choice that her made that some people agree with and disagree with. I think he probably laid it on a little thicker on the memory points and frankly on the sheer volume of this report, uh, which is longer than the Mueller report, I think, or approaches the Mueller report in length and it just does not cover the same scope of conduct. Strikes me as like laying it on a little thick. I don't know how you how you reg around that, right? Like, I think that's just a decision that somebody made and the whole point is to give them a fair amount of autonomy. But I, but I do think there's space to criticize him in that. Um, what do you make of the memory allegations and, and the other sort of comments about Biden? How problematic do you find them and, and do they raise other concerns for you? I agree about the framing. I do think, you know, to the extent that Biden's defense as he presented it to her was, you know, oh, I forgot. That does seem to some extent to be appropriate to include in a prosecution memo. I think th- I will say to me personally reading it, what really rubbed me the wrong way just as a reader was the fact that among the dates that her stated that Biden could not recall was the date of the death of his son or the year when his son, Beau Biden, died, um, which in Biden's press conference seemed to be the thing that he was the most angry about. Now, I'm sure it's also, you know, good politically for him to frame this as, you know, how dare you attack my family. But I mean, I look, I, if I try to think about the years when people close to me have died (laughs) in sudden and traumatic ways, like, I don't know if I could point to the date, right? There's I, I was thinking about this in, in relation to something you know, various like negative events in my life that left a big impression on me. And I don't know if I could pull the date out of a hat. And I'm also not 81, which I think goes to my to my other point, which is like, yes, certainly, I I am not super happy about the fact that both candidates in this election are over the age of 75. I actually do think that that is a Substantial problem for a number of reasons. But I also think it is true that, you know, there are different forms of memory. There's been some interesting writing about doctors and, and psychologists sort of responding to this in, in light of the her report. And that if, if this is actually a serious problem in, in the sense that it's, you know, impairing Biden's ability to govern, I would expect to see a bunch of reporting to that effect. And I think it is notable that we haven't yet seen that, right? Like there is, there is a big difference between not remembering the year in which something happened and like having a substantial error in judgment in your role as as president and i think that we haven't really seen anything any reporting to to the latter effect yet so i will certainly be keeping an eye on that but that does make me feel a little bit differently about how this is playing politically I just want to be, I just want to clarify quinta may not be 81 in body but she's clearly 81 <laughs> in spirit i feel like that's beyond doubt yeah, so I have three quick points. Uh, the first is on the memory point. Uh, there is nothing in that report that the public did not already know. Um, no, uh, Joe Biden has all kinds of verbal hiccups, whether you attribute those to his being 81 and having 
uh, some degree of cognitive decline or whether you attribute it to the fact that he's always been that way and he's a kind of gaff machine. He trips over things. He replaces words with other words. He's not wholly unlike George H.W. Bush in that regard. And there's an aphasic quality to his speech um, that he does not appear to notice. So uh, uh, he gets very angry when it's pointed out to him. But it's uh, that's what uh, her is noticing. And he does forget details and he gets things wrong. Uh, that's what's in the report. And her makes an evaluation that this would be a problem in front of a jury. I do not uh, begrudge him that observation, nor do I think it's really it's playing to Biden's weak spot in a campaign, and I can understand the uh, campaign and Biden's anger at that. And as Quinta points out, it does involve uh, some painful uh, examples, but it's really not telling the public anything they, uh, that the public doesn't know. Uh, on the question of the policy of the uh, the special counsel regs. This is an issue that I have, for my sins in life, dealt with for literally my entire adult life as a professional. Um, uh, and it is Alan's point is correct that whenever you are on the side uh, of an investigation, you feel like that investigation lacks adequate independence and lacks the ability to do the things it needs to do. And whenever you are sympathetic to the subject of the investigation, the investigation feels under, out of control and feels uh, unbounded by the norms and uh, behaviors that the Justice Department normally does. There is no way to square this circle. You have to make choices. And the choices that we have made, uh, which we've then bent because we don't live under the special counsel rules quite as written, are that we have rebuilt the independent counsel law under the rubric of the special counsel, the attorney general names and then leaves alone the special counsel. And with the solitary exception of Bill Barr sort of editing, uh, redacting parts of the Mueller report and mischaracterizing it really doesn't get involved. And so, in fact, the independence is quite extreme, both in situations in which that independence is salutary and in situations like Durham, where it's really quite damaging. The final point I will make is that, look, this really, it is important to separate this case from the Trump case, which, you know, Mr. Herr was actually quite candid that his evidence was not strong enough to bring a case, quite apart from Biden's memory issues, that just the evidence that this material was willfully as opposed to accidentally retained and disclosed uh, is not 100%. And more importantly, that Biden's cooperation with and disclosure of the material when found was the cooperation was essentially total. The investigator was self-reported. Uh, all of this is radically different from the Trump case. And so, look, if the question is, should we cluck at Biden's conduct? I think the answer to that question is yes. And I think it's worse than Hillary Clinton's 
Uh, I think it's kind of not as bad as, but in the same general department as Petraeus's. And I think it's, I think it's very unfortunate and ugly. If the question is, should he be prosecuted? It is, is it similar to Trump's? The answer is absolutely not. And so I'm not sure that the political arena is the wrong arena for people to think this through, both in terms of evaluating his memory and how, what we should make of that, and in terms of evaluating how much we want to hold against him the conduct in question. Well, let's let's move then to the other presidential candidate who made some interesting comments about NATO at a rally recently. I will simply read them to you and I will not do a Trump voice because I'm not good at that. Uh, so this is imagine Trump saying this, quote, one of the presidents of a big country, he's talking here about something that he says happened in 2018, uh, stood up and said, well, sir, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. So this is Donald Trump saying uh, not only that he would not come to the aid of a fellow NATO member if they were attacked by Russia, if they had not paid, we'll put an asterisk on what that means, um, but that he would affirmatively encourage Russia to attack them. This continues what seems to be his persistent confusion over the course of six years more about what NATO actually is and what it means to pay for NATO. And these comments have unsurprisingly caused a fair amount of alarm across other other NATO members and among uh, sort of people in the national security space, including uh, former members of the Trump administration, such as uh, one John Bolton, who has been going around basically saying, you know, he is dead serious about this. Do not think that this is a joke or exaggeration. He absolutely thinks that this is how NATO works, and he will do this. Um, so Scott, resident NATO defender, uh, first off, can you explain why Trump's interpretation of how NATO works is wrong. And second off, are we all doomed? So Trump's interpretation is wrong, but there is actually a point of merit underlying this this line of inquiry that Trump has been pursuing really all the way back to 2017, 2018, early in his presidency, uh, and perhaps even his time as a candidate. Uh, I, I think there were some comments during the 2016 election. The basic point is that uh, about 10 years ago, less than 10 years ago, NATO set a 10-year goal that all NATO members would spend at least 2% of their GDP on defense spending. They would slowly ratchet that up. And now we are almost at the expiration of that 10-year window. I think it is 2024. Maybe it's 2025. I can't recall exactly. And that uh, only about a third of NATO members have actually hit that target. Um, And that's in spite of the war in Ukraine giving a lot of impetus to European governments to up their defense spending in a serious way. Many of them have. Uh, many of them have have expressed an intent to work towards this 2% target that is much more serious and committed and that they've demonstrated more steps the last two years than they did over the prior eight. Um, but it's a point of, you know, longstanding policy concern and frustration by the United States and select other governments because the United States does, uh, as a result of this, bear a, a disproportionate part of the burden of defense costs and the defense risks entailed in any sort of military encounter with Russia or with anyone else under the NATO umbrella. That said, 
What this does not mean is that this is not a uh, opportunity to start ignoring your treaty obligations. The treaty obligation uh, to come to defense of NATO partners is not contingent upon full payment of this amount, nor could it be because this was just kind of a policy decision made decades late after the fact. There is supposed to be a, a clear obligation in place. That said, another thing to bear in mind is that the Article 5 obligation that is the hinge of all this actually isn't quite the firm obligation people think it is. It is a firm obligation to consult uh, and to come to the aid of NATO members, not necessarily with military intervention. They actually quite expressly don't don't say that as a requirement. Uh, and that was a matter of design of NATO, uh, in part because of U.S. constitutional concerns about whether the president or Congress has to authorize military intervention, the use of force overseas, among other policy considerations. So there is lots of wiggle room, even within the existing legal framework by which a former President Trump, or pardon me, a future President Trump could exercises authorities commander in chief to say nope i'm meeting these nato obligations because i'm holding these meetings i am providing assistance maybe i'm sending arms maybe i'm doing other things that i think is appropriate um which is kind of the standard set um by article 5 but uh it doesn't entail full fully coming to their defense and that's the real harm of trump's statements here which aren't new i don't think this is surprising for anyone who's been following trump on this for the last several years but it's disturbing cuz the deterrent effect of NATO hinges on the willingness of particularly the United States and other NATO members, but particularly the United States, to come full bore to the defense of NATO allies, even though they don't have a hard obligation to do so. Um, and so when you start signaling weakness in that commitment, you undermine the credibility of that deterrent effect. And that's ultimately like the idea behind NATO isn't to have to go to the, have these wars. It's to deter people from starting them in the first place. And so that for that reason, it's, it's very reasonable for or I think NATO members to to have concern over this, even if it's not anything new, um, even if you know NATO leadership is very clear, we think the United States will remain a, a strong ally of NATO, um, even if former President Trump is elected. With as they've said quite expressly, there has to be some anxiety underlying that because even if Trump doesn't follow up on these threats, the fact that he's saying them undermines the effectiveness of NATO as a deterrent. And in some ways, the fact that some of his policy advisors like Keith Kellogg have come out saying, well, here's ways we could restructure NATO to make what Trump says more of a realistic possibility, other than the fact that they're kind of foolish proposals because you would have to have unanimous consent of NATO to amend the treaty arrangement and pursue a bunch of other arrangements, or you would have to trash NATO and just start over from scratch. Like, Setting that aside, even they just go further in undermining the idea, the credibility of NATO, and they kind of make the idea that Trump might actually be pursuing these as policy changes much more credible in a way that, again, I think further undermines that deterrent effect. Scott, I'm curious, how much does the recent law that Congress passed making it more difficult for the president to unilaterally withdraw us from NATO? A, a law that I will henceforth call the Scott Anderson saves NATO Thank law you. because. As far as, as far as we can tell, it was uh, inspired by a lawfare piece you wrote. Uh, for, for any, for any, uh, uh, current or prospective funders, that's what we call impact. There we go. Yes, please. <laughs> Take note. <laughs> if you like NATO, I've got other ideas. Fun, fun lawfare. Uh, I mean, to, to what extent does that, I don't want to say obviate, but maybe minimize the, the risk of what would happen to NATO in, in a second Trump administration? So it's a big step in the right direction, although there's actually an additional step that was dropped out of the law um, that needs to be taken. Uh, it's something I'm, I'm working on a piece on right now, uh, and I think is a, a real positive step. Congress or actually just the House and or Senate could, could and should take on its own. What that provision does is it, it, it's pretty straightforward. It, it says expressly 
the president shall not withdraw from NATO without permission of two thirds of the Senate, the advice and consent of two thirds of the Senate or pursuant to an act of Congress. And then it says no fund shall be used for that purpose absent that permission. There's some other notification provisions, things like that, but those are the key elements of the law. The reason that's important is because the president's authority to withdraw from treaties is something that's not spelled out in the Constitution anywhere. It's something the president has only exercised over the course of the 20th century. Before that, Congress usually had a role in removing the United States from treaties, although the ways it did varied pretty dramatically over the years. And if we look at this through the lens of how the Supreme Court and the executive branch tend to think about the presidential authority, implied authorities from the Constitution, it exists in what is famously called the zone of twilight, an area where the president is, doesn't have an express authorization, but he's not clearly acting contrary to Congress. And everybody agrees this is an authority that has to lie somewhere with, with the political branches um, because it's obviously a federal authority that has to live somewhere. And so the president essentially often is given a substantial leeway to act um, so long as Congress is silent. But it presents a much more difficult question when Congress actually enacts a prohibition. Then you are in a situation that uh, Justice Jackson famously described as the lowest ebb um, in his in, in carving out what is known as the Youngstown framework in a concurrence opinion in 1952, if I recall correctly, 52 or 54. I can't remember off the top of my head. But essentially, that means that all of a sudden, where if Congress expressly prohibits something, which this law does, if the president tries to do it using implied powers – the presumption of that framework is that the president doesn't have that authority unless he can point to some sort of a constitutional grant that is exclusively his, meaning Congress has no ability to even disable him or affect him in how to do that. I don't think there's a constitutional grant that express, or at least the case for it is extremely weak. The executive branch, notably Trump administration itself, did release an OLC opinion in December 2020 as it was leaving office, asserting that there was express authority and exclusive authority in the president in doing this, um, rooted in the logic of a Zivotofsky opinion that came out in 2015 that I, that I worked on while I was in government. I do not think that's a persuasive case. And the whole point of this provision is to set up the conditions under which Congress can legally challenge the president's reliance on that argument. Bring it to the courts, dare the president to defend his argument before the Supreme Court and accept the consequences. And I think the executive branch will flinch at that because they do not have a strong argument. The problem with that is that there's one barrier this rule doesn't overcome, and that's a standing barrier. It's not really clear who would actually have the legal authority to pursue a lawsuit challenging an unlawful withdrawal from NATO because it's so removed from most private citizens. I can imagine certain categories of private citizens that might be able to pursue that claim, but I'm not sure it's an airtight standing case. I think the best way to get standing would be for Congress to authorize legislation for itself to pursue that sort of claim. Um, and notably, because they hinge this on the appropriations clause by holding off funding, there's actually a D.C. Circuit not actually precedent because the opinions were officially withdrawn, but recent D.C. Circuit cases that suggest that I, actually either the House or the Senate could probably have standing to pursue that legislation. And so that's the added step I think the House or the Senate needs to take to make this airtight. They need to authorize legislation or probably litigation on their behalf enforcing this legal right and should do it in advance so that the executive branch knows as soon as we try doing this, it's going to immediately go to the courts and to, to lock in that separate deterrent effect. All that's to say that this just defends formal U.S. membership in NATO it doesn't tighten up the ability of forcing the president to do anything um, under Article 5 other than the need to comply with this treaty obligation. And under our Constitution, it's not really clear what Congress can do in that regard. President's commander-in-chief, he's got a lot of authority. Maybe Congress could like appropriate funds and compel the president to send them. I actually think there's a good argument that they could do things like that. But it's going to be constitutionally fraught. It's going to be a source of argument. Um, and it's it's a much trickier legal question. So, you know, preserving membership doesn't necessarily solve the Trump era concern, but it does mean Trump can't withdraw the United States from the alliance and completely undermine it for future generations and future presidents that may be willing to engage it more seriously.
Yeah, I just want to emphasize the point that, that Scott, you just made at the end, which is that even if this statute can prevent the formal withdrawal from NATO, it cannot prevent Trump from destroying NATO and doing it by doing exactly what he described himself as doing, probably falsely, in that story, which is by encouraging an attack on or even just not discouraging an attack on a NATO member state and then refusing to honor our section, our, our Article 5 obligations when invoked. NATO, like most treaties, is a confidence game. And I don't mean that in a bad way, because, but it works because people believe in it and because countries act like uh, it's a real thing and it's a real security guarantee. The moment that you reveal it is not a secure, a real security guarantee, it becomes, you know, the emptiest of pieces of paper. And, and so I, while I do think a legislation that discourages the attempt to destroy the alliance is, is very salutary. I don't want to count on that legislation. Trump is consistent about relatively few things in life. But one thing that he's very consistent about is that he does not believe in our overseas alliances and he does not believe that our that he believes that our allies are scamming us for money and uh, that we're kind of uh, suckers for this exploitation of, you know, rapacious uh, European countries and South Koreans and Japanese who don't pay their bills, which, of course, Trump doesn't pay his bills, but that's a different matter. Uh, I mean, there's some there's some projection going on there. But he is very clear about what he believes, and he's been quite consistent about it over time. And I think uh, we should take him pretty seriously about that and not rely, uh, which is not to say we should not pass the second part of the Scott Saves NATO bill, but I don't think we should rely on these things to, you know, tyrant proof or to denato uh, proof uh, the executive branch. If Trump, if Trump is elected and wants to destroy NATO, uh, he does not need a lot of formal authority in order to do that. Well, folks, that is all the time we have to dig into these topics this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the weeks to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week? Uh, so I have a really fun new television series, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, that's on uh, Amazon Prime. It's uh, – I wouldn't call it a remake. Uh, I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of a remake of a really fun and quite silly but I think quite charming movie from the early 2000s with um, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie where they play two spies uh, who, unbeknownst to themselves – they both play spies, but they don't realize the other are spies and they're told to kill each other. And then it's really fun. This is a somewhat different version of that. And it's a, a kind of like, I think eight episode first season. It stars Donald Glover, who many will know from many wonderful things. If you're a music fan, you'll know him as Childish Gambino. If you're a community fan, you'll know him from Community. 
also played a pretty great uh, young uh, Lando Calrissian in the Han Solo movie. Uh, so he created it. He co-stars with uh, Maya Erskine. It's super fun. It's super weird in the way that Donald Glover is super weird, uh, but it's my kind of weird. So um, I, I really, really recommend it. it. It's kind of, you know, it has its fun action moments, but it's really, it, it's really about if you had two spies who had to live together and work together, like what would that actual interpersonal relationship be like? And it is, it's pretty great. I was I love my air skiing from her series Pen Fifteen, which is Pen one 15. of the. Oh, best, I'm so glad you give a shout out to that. Oh, I love Pen it's Fifteen. So good. It's I haven't so good. I haven't seen it, but I I do want to check it out now. Physically just given how much painful I like to watch. Skiing. It is especially painful as to watch. as the only former middle school girl. I will say, it yeah. Well, anybody who's gone through puberty will find it very painful to watch. Yeah, I don't know. It I, is, I was a middle. I was a middle school boy. I'm not sure it's like that much better. <laughs> it, it is. It is brutal, but so funny. And they're so funny because part of the premise is that her and her, I think, writing and production partner, that are adult woman playing middle school girls with actual middle school age students uh, and other actors and actor. Uh, it's just phenomenal. Uh, so, but I'm excited to see her in a dramatic ish. Uh, sounds like mostly dramatic role uh, in this. So, I definitely am going to check that out. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I would like to recommend a incredibly funny uh, New York Times Magazine article entitled How Mark Meadows Became the Least Trusted Man in Washington, um, which is about his rise and fall and the trail of sadness that he has left behind him. Um, mostly, it seems because he has a habit of promising Various incompatible things to, to different people, which did not serve him well when he was Trump's chief of staff. Um, my personal favorite anecdote is a story in here about how after he first won his congressional seat in 2012, um, and I quote, he promised two different aides that they would be his chief of staff only to award the job to a third person and then cried at one of them when they confronted what a legend. Him about it. <laughs> So as a conflict-avoidant person, <laughs> I feel a little uncomfortably seen there, although I've never gone quite that far. Um, but I, I highly recommend it. It's a very fun read and uh, quite illuminating about the former chief of staff. Wonderful. Well, for my object lesson this week, we are just coming off the Super Bowl, guys. It is The Super Bowl is my Super Bowl, if you will, every year. It's a big event I look forward to. Uh, I usually cook. I, this year, I made a big, giant platter of nachos, made a bunch of chili. Uh, I had a few friends over with little kids that then proceeded to distract us from actually watching very much of the actual Super Bowl, unfortunately. Uh, but I always enjoy it. But it also makes me sad in a way that's only comparable to the day after Christmas, uh, because it means football season's over, uh, and I will not have sports I actually enjoy to watch uh, for a long time, at least until I get into basketball or baseball. But I will say uh, there's one thing that gives me such joy at the end of football season, which is as somebody who really follows a lot of like the inside news and little details, there's a phenomenal set of videos that a woman named Annie Agar puts together uh, where she is essentially playing the head coaches or representatives of all the different teams in a meeting together, having a conversation with herself. Um, she does this repeatedly over the course of each season. I think she's now like a correspondent for some sports news, I think stadium news service. Um, but they're really, really exceptionally funny. And particularly if you get all the inside jokes uh, and things because you follow the news closely enough over the course of the season, they're just phenomenal. I've really, really gotten into this season. I think they're great. So I'm going to give a shout out to her. Check them out on YouTube or Twitter, or if you might find them, Annie, A-N-N-I-E-A-G-A-R. They're very clever and very funny if you are a sports fan. If you're not a sports fan, they're probably not going to make a lot of sense to you. But you'll get like one or two of the jokes. And like, if nothing else, they're like impressive production feats for somebody who appears to mostly be doing this out of their, you know, closet at home. Ben, I'll hand it over to you. Bring us home. What do you have for our object lessons this week? 
So as those of you who subscribe to my newsletter, Dogshirt Daily, know, I have been on a uh, long-term quixotic campaign to embarrass the New York Times into stopping using rhetorical questions as headlines. They're stupid. The answers to almost all of them are obvious. They often don't really suggest what the story is about. And I didn't realize until the other day when I looked at the New York Times uh, website that I was actually on a quest to find the dumbest headline question ever written. And I didn't realize this until the other day when I found the dumbest ever headline question in the history of the New York Times. And I'm just going to read it to you. The headline of a real article, I swear I am not making this up, is Taylor Swift's next album is the Tortured Poets Department. What do tortured poets think? And I... (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty stupid. (laughs) I just thought the Holy Grail has been obtained. I can retire this particular campaign at this point. But is there anything that would be more tortuous to a poet serious enough to be tortured over it than to be asked a question... By the New York Times, finally, and it's about Taylor Swift. Well, I'm not sure there, point, there, there but how do you how do you find tortured poets? Okay, so, it's like so th- seeking a poget. Hey, by the way, are you t- are you tortured? Were you concerned? How so- are we defining are torture? Are you plath level tortured? Are you um, are you stretched also, on a rack? Wait, wait, and this, of course, to bring it back to lawfare. What about those poets whose treatment amounts to cruel, inhuman, degrading treatment, but not to torture? Right? Like if or, you, or it, if it, you, poets that are being interrogated in an enhanced way, if like you it's just merely so waterboarded the poets. Um, you know, oh, and so there's like a lot of questions here that we got to work through. Well, on the, on that note, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But of course, rational security is a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our own tortured headlines, occasionally in rhetorical question mode, although I feel like that may no longer be the case for much longer. And while you're there, you can find our show page with links to past episodes for our written our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series, including The Aftermath, now out in Season 2. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RITL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Preferably a good one, if at all possible. But bad ones are fine, too, I guess. But say something nice no, in the comments. No, they're really not, actually. Don't leave us a bad review. Yeah, don't, don't leave do us a bad that. review. Do just, just stop listening. Just unsubscribe. Yeah, That's fine. Just... Actually, don't unsubscribe. Stay subscribed. Yeah, Keep we... downloading. Just don't listen. Right. <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> that's the solution. That's what we want you to do if you don't that's like That's what we us. want if you could. Yeah. Thank you. In fact, if you don't like us, share us anyway. It, it's no skin off your yeah, back. Punish your, punish your friends. Uh, <laughs> take their phones, subscribe to Rational Security and the Lawfare Podcast. And leave a good review and then run. from them. And leave a good review from them. Exactly. So they have to deal with us more. Ruin their algorithm. Keep getting us promoted on their phones. Thank you. That is, that is our secret to success. With that, also consider signing up to become a material supporter of Lawfare <laughs> on Patreon. For an ad-free version of this podcast, among other special benefits, for more information, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Nomaz Band of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, and our special guest, Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.